Well, I began a new sermon series last week on the book of Romans. Romans is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in Rome. And Paul is writing to a church that he has never personally visited, even though these Christians live in the very capital of the Roman Empire. And so before Paul can really write about the stuff he wants to write about, essentially the gospel of Jesus, he spends these verses answering the obvious question, the elephant in the room of this letter. Where have you been? Where have you been, Paul? Like, why didn't you come visit us? Don't you think Rome is kind of an important place to go? Don't you think the people in the most important city in the world matter? Where have you been, Paul? And so to answer that, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. If you want to open your Bibles or your bulletins and have the text in front of you this morning as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. Let us hear the Word of God this morning. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have inspired Your Word, that Your Word is true, that Your Word is powerful, that since it comes from You, it also has Your power. And so, God, we pray that You would work through Your Word and Spirit in answer to our prayers and that You would even work through someone as unacceptable as me with weaknesses and failings and sins, to faithfully preach Your Word and to explain it, and that You would give us ears to hear Your Word, opening our hearts and minds to gladly receive it, to trust in it, to be corrected by it, and examine ourselves according to it, that we would go and live by Your Word, knowing all that You would have us to know and doing all that You would have us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So where have you been? Why don't you call? Why don't you visit? That's kind of the complaint that Paul is trying to answer here. And so what we're going to see in these verses is Paul first explain his absence. You know, why haven't I come? And then he's going to imagine 
what it's going to be like when he does get there. What is this visit going to be like? And he's going to emphasize throughout that it doesn't matter who we are or where we are, we can all serve Jesus. And so first we see Paul explain his absence. Paul's answering that question, why hasn't the apostle to the Gentiles been to the biggest Gentile city in the world? You went to Ephesus, to Corinth, to Athens, but what about Rome? If someone were to make you the apostle to Washington County, you'd probably go to Washington. That's the capital city of the county, okay? That's where you would go. If you went everywhere but Washington, people would be like, this is weird, right? That's kind of what they're saying. And that's kind of what Paul is explaining why he hasn't been to Rome. He says in verse 13 that he often planned on visiting Rome. But thus far, he has been prevented from doing so. Earlier in verse 10, he expresses how he hopes to at last come to them. So even Paul understands that he should go, and he's probably behind schedule on going. But he also understands that he's not the one who sets the schedule. He trusts in God's providence. Providence is that way that God ordains everything that happens. And so Paul knows God is in control. He knows that God has thus far kept Paul from going to Rome. Paul doesn't know why he he hasn't been able to get there and he seems to be led to all these other places, but he trusts that God has his reasons. But even though Paul has been kept from being physically present in the city of Rome, he assures them, I've still been serving you. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul says, I've been praying to God for you, thanking God for you. He says later in verses 9 and 10, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul regularly remembers to pray for them. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus. He prays for the opportunity to get to visit them. And he prays, surely, for God to bless them and their ministry in the capital of the empire. And so we should take two important corrections from these words of Paul about his absence. Two ways that we can kind of go wrong and he can help us here. First, we too often use our circumstances as an excuse not to serve God. That, sorry, I'd love to help you, but my, my car's in the shop. You know, I wish I could be of assistance, but now's not a very good time for me. I, you know, I wish I could help, but that's not what I'm good at. I wish I could help, but it's just too far away from me. I can't do anything for those people so far away. We can be experts at, at excuses when it comes to serving. And Paul kind of gives his excuse. God's to blame. God has kept me from serving you. But here's the thing. He doesn't blame God in a bad way. He's explaining that I trust God has kept me from Rome and has given me stuff to do in other places. That God has wisely placed him in other cities where he has been able to do fruitful gospel ministry. And so no matter where Paul is, Paul recognizes Well, God's got me here. 
So what are we going to do today here? What can I do here? Do we feel the same way about our circumstances? Do we feel that God has providentially ordained wherever we are and whatever we are going through? And if so, do we also believe that God has some kind of obedient service in mind that we can do within our present circumstances? So often we can list all of the things that we can't do right now instead of prayerfully considering what can we do right now. So that's one correction Paul's words can give us. is thinking about where has God placed me and why? The second important correction is kind of connected to the first, and it's that we can too often devalue prayer. We have a nasty habit of wanting to do something. And we don't feel like praying is doing something. And we get that attitude reinforced from our culture that whenever tragedy strikes, someone likes to get up and say, how are those thoughts and prayers helping? And we're like, yeah, sorry, I'll stop praying. Well, when able, yeah, we can and should do more than pray. But we should never do less than pray. And so even though Paul wasn't physically present in Rome, he still believed, I can serve them by praying for them. He strongly believed that prayer was a valuable form of ministry. And we do too, if we think about it. Think for a second that you have a very good friend who has a child who is struggling in school. And you happen to be friends with the superintendent of that school district. Would we consider it doing nothing to talk to the superintendent of that district about the struggles of that child? No. We'd be like, that's doing something awesome. Well, God, our God, happens to be the superintendent of the world. The whole world. So yeah, we should think of it as doing something valuable. And so if you hear that there are Christians in other parts of the world being persecuted, pray for them. If you don't feel like you can go into the mission field in some foreign country and serve as a missionary, you know what you can do? You could pray for them and the work that they're doing. If you're like, there's no way on earth that I could ever teach Sunday school. Okay. Well, you could pray that God would raise up teachers. You could pray for those who are teachers that they would serve well. That helps. Even if you are in a hospital bed, unable to move your limbs, unable to open your mouth, you still have access to God in prayer. And so Paul's explanation for his absence helps us to see that persistent prayer can be fruitful ministry even when providence prevents our personal presence in a place. And so Paul explains his absence. He's saying prayer works. You can do stuff wherever you are. But then Paul starts imagining, all right, let's envision this trip to Rome. What's it going to look like? Well, Paul does not envision entering Rome as a hero or celebrity. Hey, apostles of the Gentiles here. Nice to see you. Isn't it nice that the great Apostle Paul is finally here and your church can now actually receive true and good blessing from me? I know you guys have been doing it yourself, but I am here now. 
That's not what he envisions. Not at all. He says this in verse 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul wants to help them when he comes. He wants to strengthen their faith. But did you hear the humility? He wants to impart some spiritual gift. He freely admits, I don't really know what that is. I don't know what's going on in Rome. I've never been there. I don't know your needs. I don't know your challenges. I don't know exactly what kind of strengthening you need. And so Paul is kind of like a personal trainer who is meeting with you for the first time. He wants to see you use a bunch of those weird machines that you don't know how they work and move and lift and do stuff so he can be like, all right, that's what we're working with. Okay. And so he can analyze and set up a plan for what it is we need to do to strengthen you. So Paul knows that I'm going to strengthen you in some way. I'm not quite sure how, but I will do that when I get there. He says in verse 13, I want to come in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So again, some, not great, not amazing, not just incredible. He has no idea, but I trust there will be some. That every place he has gone, God has blessed him in his ministry. And so he trusts that whenever God gets around to getting him to Rome, something good's going to happen. Some kind of harvest. Something. God has gifted him and called him to serve as the apostle to the Gentiles. And there sure are Gentiles in Rome. So he's going to use me there. Don't know how. But we see in these words also a recognition, not just of humility, but he builds up others. Paul knows that he is not the only one gifted to serve the church. He knows that God gifts all people to serve one another. And so he quickly adds in verse 12 that he expects to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so sure, Paul may be an apostle, but he still needs encouragement. Paul is not without sin. Paul is not without weakness. He needs help from others in the body of Christ, and he expects that he will meet people in Rome that will bless him as well. It's Paul's way of saying that everyone can be of service in God's kingdom. That everyone in the body of Christ is gifted by God for service. That includes the Apostle Paul, And that includes people in the greatest city in the world. And it includes everyone. That's what it is. Everyone includes everyone. And it's possible, maybe, that the Christians in Rome had a slightly elevated view of themselves. You know, I don't want to pick on big city folk that much, but it seems like people in major cities, say New York or Los Angeles, can look down on some folks that live in more rural areas of the country thinking maybe we're not quite as important. We're not quite as impressive. Real stuff doesn't really happen here. The moving and shaking happens elsewhere. And you know what? We can buy into that. We can think that as well. That if we want to do something truly important or impressive, we need to go someplace different, to a big city, to a place where things really happen. But notice how Paul corrects that. In verses 13 and 14, he says, I hope to reap a harvest among the Romans 
as well as the rest of the Gentiles. And then he names kind of all the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, to both the wise and to the foolish. And so Paul is saying, hey, I am not a preacher only for the rich and famous. I am not just a big city preacher or a little city preacher. I have been sent by Jesus to all the Gentiles. And he gives us those two pairings that show us what he means by all the Gentiles. He says Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks would have been those who lived within the limits of the empire, who spoke the language and generally fit in. The barbarians, though, were those Gentiles living on the outskirts of the empire. They would have been like tribal people in Africa or way off in what we call Asia or in northern Europe. They didn't know the gods of the Roman Empire. They didn't speak the language. They didn't use Roman currency. And yet Paul says, I'm called to reach them. Which means if he's called to reach them, presumably, then God would gift some of them with gifts that could be of service even to the people in Rome. The same goes for the pairing of wise and foolish, that the wise probably referred to the upper class society of Rome. Those who were privileged enough to be citizens, they were educated and probably owned some land. The foolish would have been more like the serving class with minimal education. They were likely in poverty and maybe even slavery. And yet Paul's called to reach them too. And knows that God would gladly gift them to be of service to those who are wise as well. Paul's words in Romans 1 show that all people need the gospel. And when any person receives the gospel, no matter their background, no matter their natural abilities, no matter who they are or where they are, God gifts them to serve the church. And that includes all of you. That we are all able to offer mutual encouragement to one another. We are all able to serve God in the ways that He has gifted us. That we are like laborers out in a field in need of harvest. And God has providentially placed each of us somewhere in that field so that we can reap some harvest for God's glory. The problem is that when it comes to serving God, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, we struggle to do so. We do. And we get down on ourselves about it. We read about Paul saying, I pray without ceasing and always. And we're like, man, I don't do that. Like, I'd have a hard time even writing, I pray weekly for you. Like, it doesn't have quite the same effect. I pray for you every new moon. No. And when we do pray, we often struggle to stay awake. Like Jesus' disciples in Gethsemane. And when we pray, we spend far more time worrying than we do praying. And when we finally are like, I'm going to get better at this, and I'm going to make a big prayer plan, and I'm going to follow it, then we just fail. And we feel like, I can't do this. And when it comes to using our gifts to serve others, we often think we are of no use to the church. We doubt that God has gifted us because we don't really know what those gifts look like. We don't have those obvious gifts like some people. And so we fail to serve. Or maybe we fail to serve because we're busy doing other things. Or because we don't want to fail in front of other people. 
Maybe we're willing to serve, but we're just a little snooty about who we serve. We may say we want to serve all people, but we quickly just write off people as options of people who we would serve because oh, I don't want to, no, not them. No, not them. No, not them either. We make snap judgments about who is worthy of our service. And so we struggle to pray, we struggle to serve, we struggle to see how we've been gifted. But thankfully, Jesus is the one who helps us to do these things, to pray faithfully and to serve willingly. You see, Jesus is the perfect prayer. He sets an example for us about regular dedicated prayer. We read in the Bible how he would wake up early and spend hours praying to his heavenly father. That in his final hours of freedom before he was arrested, Jesus was praying in the garden. And even on the cross, as he is dying, he is praying, not just to God, but Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when we believe in Jesus, he fills us with his spirit. His perfect record of prayer is given to us. And so now... If we trust in Jesus, his righteousness, including his praying, is credited to us. And so we don't have to beat ourselves up about all of our pitiful attempts at prayer. We get to ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit, help me pray like Jesus. Help me to pray for the things Jesus loves and for the people Jesus loves. Help me to know that God delights to answer the prayers of his people. Help me, Spirit. Jesus empowers us by giving us the Spirit to help pray. And we trust that that same Spirit who helps us pray blesses us with these spiritual gifts to serve and encourage one another in the church. So often we set our minds on our perceived limitations and weaknesses when we should set our minds on Jesus Christ, the head of His body that is the church. We trust that if He has saved us by grace... He has also called us to serve by grace. We remember that it is Jesus who said in John 15 that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And so if you are thinking, man, I can't really do anything. Well, you're right. You can't on your own. But with Jesus, you can when we consider how Jesus has united us to himself, we are encouraged to see ourselves as useful laborers of the harvest, capable of building up the church. Now, I want to end with this one thought, because you're probably still like, I don't think so. And I want to try to encourage you to get past that. I really want to help with this, because I want you to remember today someone who served Jesus to make you a part of the harvest. See, none of us were just born believers straight out of the womb with no one helping or praying for us at all. None of us. Not a single one. Maybe you were saved in the womb, but I bet someone was praying for you even while you were in there. Okay? All of us had someone, and likely many someones, who served you for Jesus that you might be part of the great gospel harvest that God is collecting. Now, your mind may immediately go to an obvious Sunday school teacher, a pastor, or a parent or mentor who is strongly influential, and that's good. 
But let your mind also wander to any others who might have prayed for you. Any others who might have encouraged you in your walk. And who simply used the gifts that God had given them in the place God had put them so that they were there for you at just the right time by God's providence. And let us give thanks that we can serve that same Lord and do for others what others before us have done for us, continuing to serve the Lord of the harvest. Who knows? There should be some harvest that He brings about in us and through us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who chooses out of Your wisdom to use people like us. And we can seem really unsure about that. Help us to see that that's Your choice, not ours. And You only make good choices. Wise choices. And the things that You want to do work. They will work. Maybe not the way we expect. Maybe not in the timing we expect. But they will ultimately work for all that You do prospers. And so we pray that for ourselves. We pray it also just for right now. That You would work through the words shared through Your Word, O God, in us. That You would seal in us Your truth and grow us by it. That You would help us to pray and to use the gifts that You have given to us that many more might come to know Jesus our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.